Welcome, friends. Guess who's back again? Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. I'll be your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, real estate agent with Keller Williams, urban farmer, and skeptic. And what is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly. And this group is about networking and doing deals. The St. Grandma's Rhea, folks. No sales from the front. No smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know what I'm talking about. Those dingy rooms and they're pitching shit from the front all the time. Only newbies there. Not like that at all. We focus on networking and doing deals. RDI is also this podcast where I sit down with successful people in real estate and business to learn from their successes and failures. And I also read books that I believe will help our businesses grow. And I do post the monthly RDI meetings as well for those who are unable to attend or live far away. If you're interested in attending the local meetings, go to renegadedetroit.com. Website's being worked on right now. And of course, you go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Legal disclaimer, in no way, shape, or form should anything that I and or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Time for the Renegade Detroit Investors Show Code of the Week, where I try and pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. I went with something a little simple this week, but it's you know near and dear to me and something I'm doing right now. And investing, what is comfortable is rarely profitable. Robert Arnott. In investing, what is comfortable is rarely profitable. All right, folks. And I got a new segment in the podcast now that I'm going to call housekeeping, especially if there's a, any significant period of time between podcasts so I can catch everybody up with what's going on because I get a lot of questions, right? And the first one I want to address this is the main one this time is I went out online. I did something pretty crazy. So maybe not. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what you think about it. Uh, I'm attending bold, which is if you're in the real estate agent world, uh, this is like Keller Williams Kool-Aid. Yeah, it's like all the Kool-Aid. It's like an indoctrination camp, right? But some of it's actually pretty good. If you ignore the rah-rah stuff, right, they, they start focusing on your business and accountability and things like that. And one of the things they mentioned and did was if you're really truly committed to something, you should act like it is. And we're also, as human beings, this is everybody in general, I'm sure there's an exception to the rule out there, as human beings, we are far more motivated by loss than we are reward, right? And I had written some goals earlier this year with my team leader. Um, I also have some investment goals too and podcast goals and other things like that, right? But with with my team leader, Joe, Joe Dealey, the Dealey, uh, the Dealey group out of Keller Williams. And we talked about um, some goals earlier this year and I wrote some goals out and I'm pretty much on track, but I caught myself a couple times this year talking about how it doesn't look like I'm, I will make it. I might be a little short and, eh, you know, well, I decided to do something about it. So after discussing it with my wife, uh, pretty uncomfortable, by the way, we decided, we did it together. Um, I wrote a $5,000 check to KW Cares, and that's a, a basically a nonprofit charity that Keller Williams has. And I dated it for December 1st, 2017. And I handed it to my team leader, Joe Delia, although I think Renee is actually holding on to it because, uh, hey, Joe's like me, can't be trusted with that kind of stuff, right? 
And I said, if I don't hit the 63 listings taken, that was my goal on December 1st, send that check in to KW Cares. And I did a little Facebook uh, live video on it. And I'll go ahead and post a link in the show notes for more things. The bottom line is I could use your help, guys, right? If if you know anybody, and this is for listings, I need to take 63 listings. And as when I started uh, this a week ago, I was at 30. So I need 33 more listings taken by December 1st of 2017. So if you think you can help me out with that, um, go ahead and send me a message, 313-600-2133 or Jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y at renegadedetroit.com. This is pretty much anybody in three or four counties around Metro Detroit. All right. And I'll include the video and you can listen to more. I put a little sales pitch in there as well. I'm quite motivated. Obviously, I'm pretty uncomfortable sticking my neck out there like that. So if you can help me out, I would really appreciate it. All right. So one of the books I've wanted to read on this podcast, and it's a thick book and I haven't started it for the reason it's going to take a long time to get through. However, we're finally there. The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by by Gary Keller. One of two books that I've literally thrown across the room reading. And the reason is when I initially read this book, it was like halfway through 2008. So we're, we're already, at least in Detroit, we're already deep in the crash because I started in 2007 and I'd been running my real estate business for almost three years. And some of the stuff in here, well, a lot of the stuff in here, I'd made some serious mistakes like we all do when we start, right? But if I just read this, what, $14 book, uh, <laughs> I could have saved myself tens of thousands of dollars. And I, I was pretty upset when I read it, because I was going through, I knew the right answer already, but because I had made these mistakes, right? And it turns out, hey, you could just read this book. So new thing I do now when I'm starting anything is I'll actually Google and see if there's a book on it. It seems like a silly thing to say, but if you're like me and you just like to start doing things, that can be a problem. So we're going to start reading The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. Now this is a read along, okay? So Go buy the Audible uh, book so you can listen to it. Um, I also recommend you buy a physical copy so you can highlight. I'm going to put links in the show notes. You want to help out the uh, Renegade Troy Investor podcast, just a little Amazon click through, whatever. We get a little bit. It's not a lot. Um, if you already have it, great. Let's just make sure we buy the book right, and that you read the book. And we're not listening to this to avoid buying the book or or buying it on Audible, right? This is like a read-along, study-along like you're right here with me. And I haven't read this book in several years. So we're going we're gonna to get, get back into it and dive back in. So bust out your blue. It's the blue one. And actually, I recommend the whole series. It's a great series. And we're going to go ahead and start with part one. Are you ready? You got your highlighter ready too? Let's make sure we got our highlighter. This is a, this is a study. It's a study group, all right? We're not just listening. Um, now, if you're driving, it's fine, but uh, I think it would be better if you if you were studying. All right, so we're going to start out the preface, uh, the preface, page three. I am haunted. I am haunted by the fear that our children may lose their way in a world that values money for what it can buy and not for the good it can do. I am haunted by the idea that our children are growing up in a society that places too much emphasis on the job you have, the salary you make, and the title you wear. An impatient world measures in days, not years, and populated by instant winners, lottery lovers, 
and a battery of million-dollar game shows, a time when investing has become a romantic notion of high-flying day traders and IPO millionaires, or worse, has become synonymous with a crapshoot plagued by corporate scandal, worthless stock options, and bankrupt pension funds. Most of all, I am haunted that we are teaching a generation that riches come quickly or not at all. My preoccupation with this fear began after I had a conversation with my son in a car. Big money, little money. Dad, I need to talk to you. I met his eyes in the rearview mirror as if to say, fire away. I'm serious, Dad. I turned off the radio and gave him my immediate undivided attention. John stared out the window and for a moment seemed to grapple with the right way to express what was troubling him. Parents know this brief pause before the big question. You experience a mix of curiosity and worry over what could be on your 12-year-old's mind. But it's important, so you wait and you listen. Dad, I need money. Serious money, and I need it fast. I relaxed. As a business person and an investor, I knew a few things about money. This probably was a problem I could address and hopefully teach John a thing or two in the process. What do you mean? Why do you need that kind of money? I want money. I want my own money so I can buy things, so I can buy the things I want. This was my opening, and I shared with him my belief that a big part of making money is about work ethic and patience and having a good plan. I try to express the satisfaction that comes from rolling up your sleeves and making your own way. I finished with some suggestions for ways he might make some money on his own. How about mowing yards? We can make some flyers, we can get home, and I'll help you canvas the neighborhood. But I don't want to do that. That's how I made money when I was your age. No, no, it's not fast enough, Dad. We kept going. I made suggestions, and he shot them down. My plans, it seems, either took too long or didn't create that serious big money he had in mind. After a few minutes, I was frustrated and upset, parentally angry. So I collected myself and offered one last constructive suggestion. But as I shared it, I could see in the mirror that he was already struggling to find a polite way to tell me he had no interest. Honestly, at that point, I wanted to quit in frustration to just let it go. But I made a critical decision to stay engaged and continue to search for a plan that would work for both of us. The great thing is that we did just that. Later that afternoon, back at home, we looked at his resources, went over his options, and created a broad plan for him to earn extra cash on his own, something he can build on and grow over time. As the plan came together, his confidence grew, and the mood that had gripped him earlier was dispelled. I really don't blame John for wishing that money came easily. There have been many times when I wanted to believe that too. But here's the truth you can count on. Little money comes easy, big money doesn't. Dude, that's that's true as fuck right there. It's not not in the book. Anytime I made money fast, I lost it twice as fast. Back to the book. This is a foundational truth I hope you will learn and come to understand as I have and as I hope my son will too. This book is about the plans that create big money. If I've learned anything in my entrepreneurial career, it's this. Small plans at best yield small results, and big plans at worst beat small plans. So when I want big results, I need a big plan. The best outcomes in any life's endeavors are almost always the result of a big plan powered by persistent effort over time. That approach will not only give you the best possible chance to win, it will also put you in the best possible position to win big. In terms of creating financial wealth, big money, one of the best ways I've seen, one that is truly accessible to anyone is to invest in real estate. 
Real estate investing can be an awesome avenue to wealth. It can absolutely change your life and your family's future. In fact, it can provide you with not only the minimums you need, but also the maximums you deserve. This book is not about your minimums. It's about your maximums, your maximum potential as an investor. Whether you are a beginner or a seasoned real estate investor, this book was written for you. It was written to help you succeed and succeed big. All you need is a plan, a good plan, a proven plan that can guide you from the beginning to the high levels of investing. The Millionaire Real Estate Investor will share that plan with you. We want you to become a successful real estate investor to achieve your goals, to prosper and flourish over time, and even should you choose to become a millionaire real estate investor. Of course, I'd wish the same thing for my son, and maybe that's the course you'll choose. Not long after our afternoon together, John came up to me and unexpectedly asked, unexpectedly asked, Dad, will you ever teach me to make big money? John, I told him, when you're ready, it would be one of the greatest pleasures of my life to teach you. Introduction. Ideas are the beginning points of all fortunes. Napoleonial. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to become a millionaire real estate investor? I am a lifelong teacher, and there is one thing I believe to be absolutely true. Real learning begins only when the student is open to the message. I've heard many people say, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear as if this were some strange or mysterious coincidence. The truth is, a teacher is almost always there, and learning is simply a matter of the student being ready and willing to learn. For me, this holds true whether I'm teaching an entrepreneur how to create a business plan or showing my son how to make money. If they're not ready, they don't learn. Become, becoming a successful real estate investor is no exception. The journey begins when you're ready to take it. I'd like to share a few real-life stories from people who discovered one day that they were ready to start their investment journey and did. As a registered nurse, Barbara Matson struggled to support her disabled husband and two children. Barbara transformed their lives when instead of paying off an avalanche of accumulated medical debt, she used a long overdue disability settlement to buy an investment property. In five years, she accumulated $9 million in real estate, and now she runs her own real estate company. Donna's King left her secretarial job of 16 years to pursue real estate investing and never looked back. She supported herself solely on rental income and now owns 27 houses free and clear. Donna's was able to retire at an early age. Ken Jordan, a career biologist, left the security of his government job after buying his first multifamily investment property. He now works for himself, living off rental income and his property management company. As a mother of three, Barbara Drake was determined to get a college education to set an example for her children. Not only did her first two investment properties pay for a degree, they put her children through school as well. Barbara quit her job to pursue real estate investing full-time. Now in her 60s, she owns 36 single-family homes and lives off the cash flow. When Wendy Patton, shout out to Wendy Patton, she's right here in Detroit, by the way, right on Northville Keller Williams' office, and uh, savage as fuck, by the way. She also has a, a local real estate meeting, Michigan Real Estate Investors. And it's kind of like a little bit of what I don't like with the pitching, but she doesn't pitch at every meeting. It's only like maybe a third or half the meetings, and she knows how to fill a room, by the way. So it's definitely worth attending. It's the Michigan Real Estate Investment. I think it's MREI is what it is. If you just Google it, you'll see it. Anyway, when Wendy bought her first investment property, she was living in a hotel, made 20000 a year, 
and owed that much in student loans. Today, Wendy has bought and sold more than 600 houses. That's a bigger number than that right now, by the way. This book is old. She lectures around the country and lives off her investment income. She actually owns, I think, several Keller Williams as well. And I was watching on her Facebook, uh, she's building a new house on a lake that looks like a fucking castle. I swear to God, the only thing missing is a moat and a dragon. When Danny Williams accepted an early retirement package from Delta, he owned 11 rental properties and had two children in college. Danny says he's now totally unemployable by choice and in complete control of his destiny. Jimmy and Linda McKissick struggled for years to turn a restaurant and nightclub into a sustainable business. They began supplementing their income through investment properties, and before long, they got it. Within five years, they went from a handful of investment homes to 83 residential properties worth over $10 million. Carlos Herbon and his wife immigrated to the United States from Argentina with $150 in their pocket. The couple and their sons now own several million dollars worth of real estate and run a property management company. For them, the American dream has become a re- reality. What did these investors have in common? On the surface, not much. They came from all over and began their investment journeys with vastly different resources. Some had stable jobs and equity in their homes, while others began with massive debt, no credit, and not much more than the change in their pockets. What they did share was a burning desire and a readiness to change their lives to succeed on their own without a job or a boss, without a pension plan or a safety net, and the entrepreneurial world of real estate investing. Their drive and will to succeed were strong enough to lead them to do the right things day in and day out for months and years as their net worth steadily grew. None were instant millionaires, won the proverbial lottery, or tapped into some secret formula for overnight financial success. They were ready and they were willing. They got a plan and they implemented it with persistence and patience. The millionaire real estate investor is about building great financial wealth, and although there are are ways to make money fast, even in real estate investing. This book is not about get rich quick schemes and techniques. Frankly, there are no express elevators to the top in financial wealth building, just a long flight of steps. But it is a worthy journey, and reaching the top takes both patience and perseverance. This book is about a tried and true financial wealth building vehicle that rewards those who have patience and perseverance. That vehicle is real estate. I'm a millionaire real estate investor too, but perhaps more important, I've also had the privilege as founder of the largest and fastest growing real estate franchises, uh, franchise companies in history to oversee and consult on thousands of real estate transactions. In my career, I've seen a lot of financial wealth built through real estate. I've also seen money lost as an agent and broker, a business owner and investor, and an advisor consultant. I've explored almost every angle of real estate and I've been taking notes. In the end, though, this book isn't about me, and even though we're, even though we've interviewed over a hundred of them, it's not about the other millionaire real estate investors you'll meet in these pages. The millionaire real estate investor is about you, your choices, and your possibilities. It's about the millionaire in you, the millionaire in you who dreams of fulfilling all the thoughts and visions in your head and heart. It's about the unrealized you, the you that wants to focus on how big your life can be and act accordingly. I believe the millionaire real estate investor is about the real you, not some idealized you or some new person you need to become. It's about the actual, factual, bonafide you, the naked before the mirror, indisputable, unquestionable, honest to God, you know what I mean, authentic you. I firmly believe that the opportunity to build financial wealth, even big financial wealth, is open to you. 
In fact, it is open to all people who are ready and willing to accept a challenge, no matter what their shortcomings, no matter what their current station in life. Please don't let any doubts or fears you might have turn into excuses such as, I don't have any credit, I've got too much debt, I don't know what to do, and besides, I'm no good with money. I'm here to tell you that in the end, none of that really matters. It didn't matter to the millionaire real estate investors we interviewed, and it won't matter to you. It's time to set aside those doubts that whisper things like, it's not possible or worse, I can't do it, and those fears that selfly subvert your best ambitions. I want to encourage you to sidestep this kind of self-sabotage and begin the journey with confidence. With confidence, it's possible for anyone, and if you're ready, possible for you. All right, out of the book. If you're one of these people and you know who you are and maybe have your friends tell you, right, where you, where you make claims to lack of resources or you don't have the knowledge or you're too old, you know who you are, right? It's never you couldn't do it. It was somebody else sabotaged you or whatever. Um, I had a little bit of this for a period of time and it manifests in several ways like arrogance. I know it all. That was me, right? Um, I recommend a book by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin called Extreme Ownership. All right. Um, if you're that kind of person, go listen to it and get an audible or even better, read it and listen to it at the same time. All right. Back to the book. Money lives on the other side of fear. Money lives on the other side of fear. I didn't always know this, but I now know it. it is true. Fear keeps us from getting what we want, especially in matters of money. It is true for me and it is true for you. All of us can look at our lives and count the times when fear stepped in, prevented us from taking action, and cost us a a precious financial opportunity. And this way, fear becomes a building block of future regret. It blinds us to possibilities. It keeps us where we are, stuck in a financial box. A box built by fear, a box built by our own hands. But just as fear can stop in our tracks, it can make us move faster than we ever imagined. Just as it can give us a negative focus, it can give us a positive focus that can galvanize us to take positive action. What is interesting that in this moment, when we're afraid that something won't happen or even that it will, fear points out what is most important to us. It shows us what matters most in our lives. In truth, fear isn't all bad. Don't be afraid of fear. Respect it. Keep going and move past it. Just like a river water, fear can be bridged. Fear is only as big or as wide as you allow it to be. And as is often the case, once you've crossed that river of fear and experienced the wonders on the other side, you look back and question why you were ever afraid. But here's the catch. The only people who actually know this are those who have crossed that river and are standing on the other side. It is my hope that just like the millionaires we interviewed, you will be among those who chose to cross the river of investment fear and stand financially tall on the other side. One of the things my co-authors and I will do in this book is dispel the kinds of unproductive fears that prevent good real estate investors from becoming great investors and, even worse, prevent many people from investing in real estate at all. At the same time, we'll highlight areas where fear as a good thing and caution should be exercised. The truth is that when you have the confidence that comes from understanding what to do, why you should do it, and how to do it right, most of your uncertainty will be left behind. Knowledge and insight can wash away more fear than anything else can. It's our sincere hope that the millionaire real estate investor will be a great source of knowledge, insight, and confidence for you. Money 
does live on the other side of fear. But in a bigger sense, opportunity lives on the other side of fear, of fear as well. Money just represents one tangible form of opportunity. It gives you options and allows you to choose. That's one reason we call this book The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. To us, the word millionaire represents big opportunity, unlimited options, a large life. That's what this book is ultimately about, living a large and limitless life. The first step on that journey is to acknowledge any fears that might be holding you back and then cross that bridge. Your financial opportunity lies on the other side of your investment fears. Anyone can do it. Not everyone will. While The Millionaire Real Estate Investor is a handbook for investing in real estate, it is also, at its core, a manual for creating financial wealth. Creating financial wealth begins with an understanding of the best time-tested principles for making and managing money. Creating wealth is about recognizing that wealth and riches are not the same, that the gap between a good deal and a great deal is a vast chasm created by a lack of wisdom. Learning a difference can change the way you look at the world and eventually it can change the shape of your life. How you think matters. In fact, it matters a lot. So before we can share with you the fundamental truths about money, investing, real estate, we need to make sure you agree with us on two important points. Building financial wealth through real estate is possible. Building financial wealth through real estate is possible for you. We think history has proved that the first point, and chances are you already know that investing in real estate has made others wealthy. Our primary concern is that you agree with the second point, that you really believe it's possible for you. In our experience, many people can't get their minds around the idea that they too can attain real financial wealth through investing. There's a whole laundry list of excuses, but they all boil down to one thing, self-doubt. This book will encourage you to confront that doubt and step past it to the opportunities that lie unrealized before you. Remember, as Shakespeare pointed out, our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. I'm going to highlight that. That's damn good. Our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. As you'll discover, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor is really two books in one. The first part is devoted to your thinking. In that part, you'll confront some of your myths about money, real estate, and yourself. You also learn some timeless truths about the way money works. If you can learn to think like a millionaire, you'll have a much better chance to become one. The second part of the book is about taking action. It's the how-to part and will outline a proven path to follow as well as tested models to employ. Remember, anyone can do it. Not everyone will. The only question is, will you? Overview. A casual player of Monopoly might think that it's a game of chance and that the winner is determined by rolls of the dice. Watching the best players in the world has shown me it's not. The winners are actually masters of strategy and negotiation. They know how to minimize the impact of bad luck and how to put themselves in the way of an undue share of lucky breaks. Champions take the luck out of the game. Luck. Blind luck, dumb luck, lady luck. No matter what you call it, many people believe that luck is one of the essential ingredients in real estate investing. Finding a great investment property, the perfect tenant, or the right buyer at times can feel beyond your control or anyone else's. These key elements often seem to be a matter of fortuitous timing or simple coincidence, but here's the truth. Success in real estate investing is no more about luck than is success in anything else in life. 
This is not to say that Lady Luck doesn't play her hand from time to time, but you can't plan on it, rely on it, or predict it. It is by definition beyond your control. That's what luck is, and the best investors, the tried and true champs, don't count on good luck showing up. Through the use of proven strategies and time-tested models, they make luck unnecessary. They take luck out of the game. One afternoon over a game Monopoly with my wife and son, I got the opportunity to illustrate to my son how champions use models to circumvent luck and maximize their likelihood of winning. John, don't trade with your dad, Mary, my wife said. That's how he always wins. I gave my wife a mock frown, which she answered with a playful smile. John hesitated. He wasn't sure of the right move. But in the end, he made the trade and gave me the final piece of a key monopoly. He justified the move, saying, well, it's all luck anyway. Really, I asked. I don't think so. Quickly, I mortgaged other properties and put hotels on my new monopoly. Within a handful of turns, John landed in one of my hotels, and I had the misfortune of going to jail and the double misfortune of rolling out only to land on my monopoly again. Just like that, he was knocked out of the game. Afterwards, John asked me what I meant when I said Monopoly is not just about luck. I replied, in almost every game, there are usually tried and true ways to win. And if you follow them, you may not win every time, but you will significantly increase your odds of winning most of the time. So you know how to do that with Monopoly? Sure. Do you want to learn? Of course he did. And so I went to my office and dug out an article written by a game designer that outlined a simple strategy for winning at Monopoly. We read it together, and I could see that for him, a realization was sinking in. There was a way to win, a model to follow, and when you understood what to do, it seemed that it would be harder to lose than win. John looked me in the eye and asked, Dad, have you been letting me win? Sometimes, I admitted, but I wanted you to have fun while you're learning how to play. If it makes you feel any better, I don't think you'll be needing any more help from me after this. Sure enough, we played again, and John won without any help from me. He now knew the difference in the game between the good real estate deals and the great ones. He knew what to do and what to avoid. One resounding victory wasn't enough. John later talked his uncle to playing and whipped him soundly too. Almost everyone has played Monopoly at one time or another, but very few people understand that there's a clear way to maximize their chances of winning the game. The best players know which spots on the board to get the most traffic and which ones have the highest return on investment. They also know how to acquire the most advantageous monopolies without having to land on those spaces. They network, they trade, they barter, and they find ways to make deals work. It may be an oversimplification, but to me this all sounds a lot like a real-world game of real estate investing. The question is, how do you take luck out of the real estate investing game? First, you learn to play the game. Second, you learn to win the game. Playing well and winning consistently both start with learning proven, time-tested models. Big models, big goals, big success. Early in life, I started making the connection between how I approach something and the outcome I achieved. Do it one way and get one result. Do it another way and get a better result. I began to understand that for me, there was clearly a good way of doing things. Along the way, I also learned there was an even better way of doing things. However, my biggest epiphany came when I discovered that if I wanted the best, most predictable results possible, I couldn't just put forth a good or even great effort. I had to do things the best possible way. In school, when I studied one way, I'd get a C. If I studied another way, I would get a B. And if I studied the best way, I'd get an A. When I was learning to play the guitar, if I rehearsed one way, the music sounded good. 
If I rehearsed another way, the music sounded great. But if I rehearsed the best way, over time, it sounded awesome. In retrospect, it seems obvious, but it took time for me to notice the pattern. The way I did things mattered. It mattered a lot. By paying close attention to my outcomes, I started to uncover the best ways to do the things that mattered to me. By being intentional and purposeful, I started to find success in the things I pursued. Let's be honest, I don't think you can or should be this uh, purposeful in every area of your life. The danger in bringing that kind of intensity to every task is that you'll risk wasting lots of time and energy perfecting things that really don't matter. That's being a jack of all trades but a master of none, or what I sometimes refer to as misplaced focus. But when the outcome really does matter, this kind of careful approach makes all the difference. In my effort to achieve more and more success, I discovered that my own learning and experience weren't always enough. Naturally, I started looking elsewhere and turned to books, teachers, mentors, and even consultants for advice. That became my path. And they all seemed to point in one direction. You could learn from history. Books recounted success stories. Teachers alluded to research. Mentors taught from experience and consultants often cited the specific best practices in an industry. I didn't have to start at the beginning and learn from my own mistakes. I could start in where someone else had left off. I could give up my need to do in order to learn. In fact, in this way, I could learn even faster. This was a breakthrough in my life and, quite truthfully, one of the biggest ahas ever. Some of the biggest successes I've had in business and investing are due to this simple concept. In fact, I like this I like to say that some of my best thinking was done by other people. One book in particular, Unlimited Power by Anthony Robbins, helped me both put a name to what I was looking for, modeling, and devise a process for finding those proven models. Simply put, if you look to the very best people in a field and study what they do, you often can repeat their success. The key is to learn how they achieved their goals and then understand why they did it that way. When you grasp these two things, you can start where they left off. Thus, I became a collector of success stories and models, and over time, I discovered that every success story worth exploring had three fundamental parts. What a person thought he or she could do, how that person did it, and what that person accomplished. That process, think, plan, produce, soon became the basis for my personal success goals. Big goals powered by big models lead to big success. Big goals, big models, big success. The big goals push you to think big and see new possibilities for your life. And big models make those possibilities more probable by giving your actions the foundation of proven, time-tested models. That's a formula for success. We all have personal ceilings of achievement that are based on our current thoughts and habits. Implementing the lessons learned from your own trial and error can raise that ceiling, but only so far and so fast. Proven models in contrast can help you raise your level of achievement dramatically in a relatively short period of time. It's a little like the difference between running on your own and being part of a relay team. With models, you get to skip whole legs of the race and get the momentum and speed of those who ran before you. The baton that they hand you is the gift of learning from their experience, the gift of benefiting from how far they've advanced the race. Models help us avoid known stumbling blocks and reach our objectives faster than we could alone. 
It is a huge leap of faith to assume that those starting at the bottom with only their knowledge and experience will ever reach the place where a proven model begins. To move forward in life, everyone has to learn from mistakes. The only question is whose, yours, or those of the great achievers who live before you. That's why when we set out to research a millionaire real estate investor, we went on a quest for the very best real estate investing models we can find. The ones used by the best players in the investment game. Through many months of intensive research, interviews, and mastermind group meetings, we did just that. The models we'll share with you represent the best practices of some of the most successful real estate investors today. In fact, all of the real estate investors we interviewed to build the models presented in this book owned at least $1 million worth of real estate, not including their personal residences, and over 60% achieved in excess of $1 million in equity in their investment portfolios. They averaged almost 50 rental units and over 100000 in net annual cash flow from their investments. These were career investors who had purchased an average of around 150 properties and even a few who had bought and sold over 1,500 properties in their investment careers. Our research was thorough and the results were compelling. Successful investors clearly follow proven models and those proven models for selecting, buying, and owning real estate can generate the kinds of remarkable results those investors had achieved. They are the models presented in these pages. Let's be clear. A proven model is simply a method or system used to produce desirable, repeatable results. Although no model can guarantee success, a proven model built on the best practices of high achievers almost always will maximize your chances of big success over time. I wish I had done this, by the way, off book. I think now when I started, it was a little different at the time. However, my attitude was was the big difference, right? I, I read some books and I got some training and I just went out and started doing it and I kind of suspended learning except through doing. I'm a huge fan of doing things and like 30 minutes into a conversation, I'm already mad I haven't started, right? That's uh, one of my personality traits. However, that's not the smartest way to do it, right? And, and now I know better. Back to the book. In other words, big models lead to big success. They also give you confidence in your actions and understanding and understanding of whether you are doing the right things. Models aren't really new. They are everywhere. I follow them. You follow them. Everyone follows them. Most people just aren't aware of the specific repeatable processes they've developed, such as the best way to brush their teeth, lace up their shoes, bake a cake, balance a checkbook, iron a shirt, even the best way to drive to work. You use these models to maximize the effectiveness and efficiency of your actions. That is how you get what you want more predictably more of the time. Just as these models help take the stress out of your daily life, you can use models to reduce stress, improve efficiency, and maximize results in your investment life. The models featured in the Millionaire Real Estate Investor are the ones master real estate investors use to minimize risk and maximize profit when buying, holding, and selling properties. Their knowledge didn't come for free. They paid for it with their own time, effort, and money. My initial education in real estate investing didn't come for free either. It cost me $100,000 and it forever changed the way I look at the world. The 100000 that got away. One summer weekend while vacationing at a popular beach resort, Mary and I ran to a real estate agent in the elevator. My wife asked, so how's the real estate market? Heard of any good deals? 
Actually, I know of a great one right here in the building. It's a condo that just came on the market. Would you like to see it? At first, we weren't sure. Buying wasn't really on our minds, but it seemed like a fun thing to do, so we agreed to take a look. It turned out the agent lived in the building, and even though it wasn't her listing, she knew a lot about the property. She related that the owners lived out of town, as did their agent. Although it was on the corner with beach views and was in great shape, the condo was listed for only 160000 Mary and I had been coming to that beach for years and, being real estate agents, always picked up the real estate magazines and perused the market. We had a decent understanding of values and immediately recognized the condo apparently was listed well under its market value. The agent agreed. I remember her words to this day. She said, honestly, this is a steal. Like any good agent, she asked us if we wanted to put in an offer. Even though I knew we could afford it and it was obviously a good deal, I hadn't yet become a true investor, the kind who won't allow a good deal to pass him or her by. I thanked the agent for her time and told her we'd think about it. Normally, we think about it. It's just a polite euphemism for no thanks. But sometime the next week, the condo came up again in a conversation between my wife and me. And after a short discussion at the dinner table, I got up, found the agent's card, and called her with her offer. To give you a sense of how this memory has stuck with me, I remember every aspect of that moment. I was sitting in the den in my favorite armchair calling from my black cordless phone. When the agent picked up and I told her we wanted to buy the condo, she just laughed and laughed. I told you the condo was still. It's sold the next day. I hung up the phone, turned to Mary, and said, Honey, we just lost $100,000. i will never forget that feeling. Truthfully, I feel sorry for my wife who had to spend the rest of the evening with me. I was embarrassed, preoccupied, and a little grumpy. Here I was with every advantage. I had been working in the real estate for over a decade. I knew the business. I knew how much money could be made through investing in real estate. And still, I had let this opportunity pass me by in a moment of indecision. Anyone could have bought that condo. It was priced at 160000 at a time, and we would have resold immediately for 260000 an instant 100000 windfall before expenses. Even people who might not have qualified for, for financing personally probably could have bought a short-term option for a few hundred dollars and had investors lining up outside their doors to partner on the deal. What I learned was that I wasn't thinking like a real investor. Plus, I was asking the wrong questions. I was asking, should I make an investment? When I should have been asking, is this a deal? A true real estate investor would not have walked away from a great opportunity like that. A true real estate investor would have had the confidence to act when the opportunity presented itself. What I've come to know as a fundamental truth is that all of us as real estate investors should wake up every morning and say to ourselves, I am an investor. I'm building financial wealth. Is this the day I find an opportunity and make a deal? It wasn't until I lost such a great opportunity that I finally got it. I needed to learn how to become an investor. That meant I would have to learn how to think like an investor and then act like one. $100,000 lesson learned. I vowed never to make that mistake again. I knew that I had to learn. I had to learn how to recognize an opportunity when I saw one and understand the appropriate action to take. I needed to know how to build financial wealth through smart investing. I needed to learn how to become an investor, a great one. And I knew that somewhere there had to be the best models for doing that. Within weeks, I began having regular breakfast with Michael, an old college pal who was then a financial advisor with his own television show. It was with Michael that I started to awaken the investor inside me and discover some of the fundamental financial wealth building models that are the foundation of what we'll share in this book. Mornings with Michael. 
It was Michael's television show that got the ball rolling. One day he called me up and said, hey, Gary, I want to interview you for my show. He wanted to talk about how I had made the leap from building a great small business to building a great big business. After the show, we met for breakfast and continued visiting. We had so much fun and learned so much talking about business that I suggested that we do it on a regular basis. Before long, we were meeting every other Tuesday morning for breakfast. At the very first meeting, Michael quickly discovered that I was a business person, not an investor, and so the topic of discussion each breakfast was investing or, to put it another way, how to grow financial wealth. This was my personal investment group, a club with only two members. Michael was committed to turning me into an investor, and it worked. We read every important financial author from Buffett to Ron and shared our observations. Michael encouraged me to keep a personal balance sheet, a one-page document that summarized my net worth. Each meeting, he'd ask me one simple question, Gary, how can you make your net worth grow? One of the things I learned was the simple difference between financial riches and financial wealth. Being rich isn't about having money. You can have a job and be very rich. The problem with this is that the money stops coming to you when you stop working for it. Financial wealth, by contrast, is about owning assets such as businesses or real estate that generate you money. I'm going to read that again. Financial wealth, by contrast, is about owning assets such as business or real estate that generate money for you. Those assets can have aspects of a job and that they demand some of your time, but the dollars they generate are generated disproportionate to the time you invest. Quickly, Michael taught me that I wanted to be financially wealthy instead of just rich. For over 10 years, I met with my friend and learned. After a time, I began acting on the new knowledge. One of the first things I did was to recognize a good real estate opportunity and act on it. Coincidentally, my first investment as a true real estate investor also happened to be a condo deal. While I was interviewing someone for a sales position in one of my real estate offices, the conversation turned to commercial real estate. I asked, as the investor I had become, what I now always ask, do you know of any good deals? It turned out that he knew of a building of business condos that are about to go on the market at a terrific price. This time, with no hesitation, I immediately set up showing for the next morning. I looked at the property, understood that it was priced below market value, and quickly made an offer. I'm so glad I didn't hesitate. It turned out that the price was a steal and other buyers quickly lined up to buy it only to find out that it was already sold. The good news is that I bought it the way an investor would. I recognized the opportunity, acted on it, and many years later sold the property for just under half a million dollars in net profits. Although I paid dearly for my first lesson in real estate investing, after a little time spent learning to think and act like a real estate investor, I was able to replace a $100,000 lost opportunity with a success story worth almost five times as much. Although consistent results didn't show up overnight during the last decade by constantly searching for great opportunities, recognizing them when I found them, and acting on the best ones quickly, I've made millions through traditional investing, investing in businesses, and investing in real estate. I now know that I'm out to build financial wealth. I'm an investor all the time, and I'm always looking for an opportunity to make a deal. I'm going to go back and highlight that part. You know, I got into this thing and I uh, started getting rentals, but I quickly got into um, flipping and I got wiped out the first time. I remember it was uh, June 2007, the evil Ben Bernanke. Do you remember when he got on and it was on C-SPAN 
you know, he's talking about the real estate market and he, he said some bullshit like this, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how we say, yeah, we've seen a recent downturn in market and the real estate market, but we don't expect it to continue. We expect another quarter, maybe two quarters of about a one to one and a half per or a one and one quarter percent loss. And then we expect it to pick back up and continue growing at the rate. Anyway, so I went all in at the time. The bottom line is I was doing a lot of flips. And flips are great for building money, but they're not really great for building wealth. One of the things I've noticed in all the interviews I've had that the people who have the most money sell the least. They don't flip unless they have to and they hold. Um, anyway, back to the book. I now know that I'm out to build financial wealth. I'm an investor all the time and I'm always looking for an opportunity to make a deal. What's astounding is that the simple lessons I've learned with Michael aren't anything new. They've been around for ages. Most timeless truths are like that. Incredibly simple and obvious, yet overlooked by those not ready to see. When you understand the timeless truths about financial wealth building, how money really works, when you can recognize a great opportunity and are ready to act on it, your world changes. That's what this book is about. And there's no better place to begin learning these financial wealth building lessons in the arena of real estate investing. The three areas of focus for the millionaire real estate investor. In the late 1940s, quality control manager Dr. Joseph M. Durant documented the life-changing universal principle that he called vital few and trivial many. The idea was that a relatively small percentage of your efforts lead to the vast majority of results. He attributed some of his findings to the statistical work of the Italian economist Vilfredo Pareto, who had observed that 80% of the wealth in his country was owned by 20% of the population. As fate would have it, that broadly embraced principle came to be known not as Duran's Law, but as Pareto's principle. These days, we simply call it the 80-20 rule. The idea that 20% of your actions lead to 80% of your results may be one of the most powerful principles you can apply to your life. It's about getting the most from your time and effort. It's about maximizing your results. It's about having focus. Focus is the key to great success, more than effort, experience, or even natural ability. Look at the high achievers in any field and you'll discover they have powerful focus. Just as important, you'll learn that they focus on the right things the handful of truly important issues that make the biggest difference. They know what matters and when it matters most. As you move toward becoming a successful real estate investor, you too will gain that level of focus. Although the results that come from that focus may start slowly, over time they will grow substantially. When we conducted our interviews with high achievers in the real estate investment world, our goal was to discover the fundamental concepts they focused on day in and day out without distraction. In which areas did they strive to achieve mastery? What we discovered and these investors focus on what we discovered is that these investors focus on three simple but incredibly dynamic forces at the heart of real estate investing. In fact, these three forces are at the core of all investing. Criteria, terms, and network. We've come to refer to them simply as CTN. They are for us the dynamic trio of investing. Criteria, what to buy. The first of the three is criteria. Criteria describe what you buy. They're the standards that define what kind of property you're looking for. Your criteria are the things you ultimately list on your APB, All Properties Bulletin, when you're hunting for the next opportunity. Is the property a single family or multifamily? 
What is the construction? Does it have the right features and amenities that make it attractive for resale or rental? Most important, where is it located? Your criteria are the aspects of the property that are immutable facts, the things that can't be negotiated away. They are the foundational piece of your investment strategy. In practice, criteria narrow an investor's choices to properties that represent the greatest opportunity and the least risk. When the property uh, you find matches your criteria, what you get in return is something with predictable value. Think of your criteria as an opportunity filter that keeps out the bad and lets in the good. And just as good criteria are the backbone of successful real estate investing, bad criteria or no criteria at all have been the downfall of many a would-be investor. In the buy a million section of this book, we'll discuss the specific criteria successful investors use to select their investment properties. Criteria are ultimately about identifying predictable value and That is why they are the first areas of focus for the millionaire real estate investor. Terms, how you buy it. If criteria define an opportunity, terms define how you turn in a deal. Once a property meets your criteria, terms determine its value to you both now and for the future. Terms are negotiable aspects of a purchase and they include everything from the offer price, down payment, and interest rates to conveyances, occupancy, and closing costs. Every investor we asked told us that terms are where a great deal can be created from an even the most modest criteria. A skillful negotiation of terms can lead to a better equity position, improved cash flow, and sometimes both. It's about how much money you need to acquire a property and close a transaction and how much the property will yield over time. Terms are about maximizing financial value and represent the second area of focus for the millionaire real estate investor. Later in Buy a Million, we'll home in on the key terms and any transaction that can make the biggest difference in a relative in the relative success of an investment. You don't have to be a gifted negotiator like Roger Dawson or Donald Trump to capitalize on terms. It's about understanding the financial fundamentals of a transaction, knowing which elements are flexible, and being systematic about getting all you can from every deal. It's also about knowing when to walk away. Remember, you make your money going in, not going out. I can't emphasize that enough. I've been banged up several times. Like, ah, oh, no, I'll make it out. It doesn't work. You buy right and you let the market go to work for you as opposed to buying less than right and hoping the market will save you. A lot of that going on right now, right? Current boom. Buying right means getting the right terms. Network. Who helps you? The last member of the dynamic trio is network. Your network is who helps you in your investing. When we were attempting to pin down the critical areas that make the biggest difference in real estate investing, Network was a surprise contender. We just didn't see it coming. The idea of an individual entrepreneurial investor beating the streets for deals is what comes to mind for most people. But again and again, through our research, investors referred to all the people who helped him succeed. They had relationships with people who sent them opportunities, mentored them, helped them buy and maintain their properties, and in many cases provided services that enabled them to do more while spending less time and effort. As a business person, I call this leverage. The fact that you can accomplish more with qualified help, excuse me, the fact that you can accomplish more with qualified help than you can accomplish alone. 
Sorry, I got the little hiccups there. When we review network in detail and buy a million, we'll help you understand how to establish a dream team for your investment career. From real estate agents to contractors and property managers, you'll need help. In fact, although it was the last of three items we identified, network will come first in your investing career as you rely on those people to get your investment career launched safely, reliably, and profitably. The advice we provide in these pages will help you both select the best and work successfully with them over time. The three areas of focus for the real estate millionaire real estate investor criteria terms and network answer the questions of what you'll buy, how you'll buy it, and who will help you. Remember, criteria identify, terms determine, and your network supports all the investing you do. Mastering these three areas will give you the greatest chance for long-term success and place you solidly on the path to becoming a millionaire real estate investor. What do you guys think so far? We have 56 minutes in. The four stages of growth on the path to a million. The path of the millionaire real estate investor is a progression through four stages. First, you must learn to think a million, think like a millionaire real estate investor before you make your first move. How you think matters. Whether this strikes you as a cliche or as a timeless truth, my experience has taught me that the bigger I think, the more I can accomplish. I've learned that what I hold in my mind is what shows up in my life. Learning to think like a millionaire real estate investor will give you the greatest chance of becoming one. The next step is to buy a million, in which you'll get a thorough understanding of the best models for investing in real estate and more fundamentally, an understanding of money, the way it is made and the way it can be lost. The goal is to equip you with the working models you'll need to purchase investment properties with a market value of a million dollars or more. Believe it or not, this is not the huge leap you might imagine, and many investors reach that mark long before they ever expected they would. Buy a million is about the fundamentals of acquiring properties, holding them, and in some cases, selling them. Buying a million applies the power of criteria, terms, and network to launch your career in investing. After you buy a million, you'll set your sights on having an equity position of a million dollars or more in your properties. We call this stage Own a Million. This is when you realize that the investing you have done has blossomed into a bona fide business. With that transformation comes a set of specific uh, uh, comes a set of issues specific to that level level of ownership. Acquiring properties through credit potentially becomes more difficult. Cash becomes a commodity, and managing your investments could require help from several quarters. This stage involves dealing with an often often balancing cash flow with asset or equity buildup. It may involve selling, trading up, or exchanging. It certainly involves understanding the surprisingly simple realities of tax and owner entity issues. The good news is that by understanding these issues from the beginning, you can plan for them. That is what the models in this book are intended to help you do. By beginning with the right models, proven ones that can handle the big issues, you'll never have to stop and scratch your head or worse, start over and reinvent what you do. The last stage of growth for a millionaire real estate investor is receive a million. Think of it as a summit, a place where only the best have gone. Receive a million is when you are in a position to receive an annual income of a million dollars from your investments. Pivotal to this stage is that your investment businesses be designed so that you can choose to get out of the day-to-day work and enjoy the benefits of what you've created. Although you can step out at any point along the way, it is my hope you will set your sights on that big goal. There's like a little pyramid. 
And at the bottom, which is the base, is network. And on the sites is criterion terms, and it's think, buy, own, and receive from bottom to the top. It's on page 33 of figure 7. Exactly when you decide to move into the receive mode is up to you. Obviously, you don't have to wait until you're receiving a million dollars a year. Like some of the investors we met in our research, you can accept the cash flow you've built and step out of the business sooner. Or you can wait and receive more down the line. The point is that you followed the models of the millionaire real estate investor. You will have more choices, and that is a very good thing to have in your financial wealth building life. Moving forward, I believe that everyone has a chance to be financially wealthy. It begins with a state of mind, a way of looking at the world, and ultimately involves evolves into a way of life. Financially wealthy people think differently from the rest of us, or from the from the rest, and as a result, make different choices and enjoy more freedom in their lives. It's about living a large life. It's about having greater choices. This book is about one of the best ways I know to build financial wealth: real estate investing. Real estate is accessible to all and is easily one of the most leveraged ways to build wealth. The biggest obstacles most people face are their own doubts and fears. Building financial wealth can seem both daunting and dangerous, but as we've said, opportunity, especially great opportunity, always lives on the other side of your fears. Learning how to get past those fears is our next task. In the following section, Myth Understandings, we're going to reveal the kinds of fears that most people hold back and explore with you why they should not do that to you. Did I read that right? Whatever. We're moving forward. We will encourage you to shed any baggage that might slow you down. Then, armed with proven big models and powered by your big goals, you can go confidently for big results. You can follow the path of a millionaire real estate investor. It is a journey of financial wealth building. It is a journey worth taking. It can be your journey too. Points to remember. Each of us should wake up every day and say to ourselves, I'm an investor. I'm building financial wealth. Is today the day I find an opportunity to make a deal? A proven model is a process or method used to produce desirable, repeatable results. A proven model built on the best practices of high achievers in any given area will produce the most desirable and predictable results as well as maximize your chances for continued success over time. High achievers use models to take the luck out of the game. They implement big models to minimize risk and maximize profit when buying, holding, and selling real estate. The three areas of focus for the millionaire real estate investor, criteria, terms, and network determine what you'll buy, how you'll buy it, and who will help you. CTN, the dynamic trio of investing. Criteria, identify potential deals, terms, determine the real deals. Your network supports all your deals. The path of a millionaire real estate investor progresses through four stages. Think a million, buy a million, own a million, and receive a million. And they are best pursued in that order. Myth understandings. Fears are educated into us and, if we wish, can be educated out. The devil's wedge. In the old fable, The Devil's Best Tool, the devil is going out of business and selling all the tools of his trade. For sale are implements such as the Hammer of Hatred, the Scythe of Spite, the Maul of Malice, and the Dagger of Deceit. As one would expect, the devil's tools are all ominous, but oddly, the highest-priced items in his arsenal is an extremely worn and harmless-looking wedge. 
When asked why it was so expensive, the devil slowly smiles and replies, to be totally candid, this this may be my most powerful weapon of all. I call it the wedge of doubt. When all my other tools fail on me, I know I can always rely on doubt and discouragement to break the heart and shatter the will of man. How upsetting that something so small and often dismissed can be so devastating. As surprising as this is, the moral of this fable is quite clear. Don't underestimate the power to keep you from becoming your best. Yet that's exactly what often happens in the world of investing. People doubt either their abilities or the possibilities. They simply don't believe they can really be investors or that investing can help them reach financial freedom. When I talk with people about investing, they ought, what often becomes clear is that they don't initially recognize that fear or doubt is playing a significant role in their financial lives. They feel that investing is simply an intellectual option they have that they take advantage of. While they can't acknowledge the value of investing, they can't quite justify why they aren't doing it more often or at all. Only when I press asking questions such as, then why don't you do that? Do they finally realize that their doubts and fears are at least part of the reason they've been unable to give investing a serious and sustained try? That's when they finally have the ahas that the opportunities of investing live on the other side of their fears and doubts, that the best financial rewards more than likely will be found outside their comfort zone. That's when they finally understand that fears and doubts undermine their confidence and their actions and ultimately can drive a powerful wedge between them and their dreams. Not in the book. Having run Renegade Detroit Investors for for 10 years, I see this all the time. All the time. I hear so many fucking excuses about why people have been coming to meetings for years and not doing anything or show up and disappear and don't do anything. And I, I can't tell you how many times they say it's the market or their family or their husband or their wife or yeah, a lot of doubts, right? I think we're all guilty of that as humans, right? Even I, there was a period of time where shit, I think I laid on the couch for like six months and didn't do anything. Just paralyzed by fear happens to us all back to the book, eight myth understandings between you and financial wealth in the process of interviewing millionaire real estate investors for this book, a clear pattern emerged almost without fail. At one time or another, these high achieving investors had to confront a persistent fear or a nagging doubt about investing that later proved to be unfounded. In fact, we were able to identify eight of those limiting beliefs that would be investors commonly hold about becoming an investor and about investing itself. While these doubts and fears seldom are addressed in other investment books and seminars, the millionaire real estate investor we talked to impressed upon us how important it is to address these subtle yet powerful misgivings early in the game. Rest assured, they told us, everyone who intends to become financially wealthy will deal with them sooner or later. It suddenly became obvious to me that these doubts don't go away on their own. Left unexamined or not dealt with, they can keep you from becoming a great investor. We came to understand that these are myth understandings, part myth and part misunderstanding, that people have about investing. And after some consideration, two distinct categories of myth understandings emerged from the research. Number one, myth understandings about the way you look at yourself as an investor. Your myth understandings about the way you look at investing. This surprised us. We thought myth understandings would be about money and investing, but the more we thought about it, the more it made sense. And there's a chart on page 39. 
where where they actually summarize what I think I'm about to read. So I'm not going to read it, but there's a chart on page 39. People generally have two ways of looking at anything, the way they see themselves in the world and the way they see the world and how it works. You might think it would be reversed that your perceptions on how the world works would inform your sense of how successful you could be. But for some strange reason, it doesn't. The image you have of yourself as an investor becomes a lens through which you see the world of investing, and that image will either guide or misguide you. Interestingly, any myths you have about yourself as an investor tend to be magna- tend to magnify your misunderstandings about investing. That's what we call the misunderstanding about the way you view the world of investor as the big three. The big three misunderstandings about the way you look at yourself as an investor. Personal myth number one. I don't need to be an investor. My job will take care of my financial wealth. Truth. Yes, you do need to be an investor. Your job is not your financial wealth. It is almost epidemic how many people think they don't need to be an investor. Usually that happens because they believe consciously or unconsciously that the path to financial wealth is through one's job. If you're like me and believe that financial wealth is about having enough unearned income to finance your life mission, without the need to work, chances are your current job income or savings plan will not be nearly enough to build true financial wealth. It is highly unlikely that your job creates enough income for you to set aside a manageable percentage of it and, at an average interest rate, still achieve achieve true financial wealth. Many years ago, this is a common and encouraged practice that I call the myth of the modest saver. Thrifty individuals would stash small sums of money in coffee cans, under mattresses, and in personal savings accounts, believing they eventually would achieve financial freedom. In more modern times, this modest saver has evolved into a modest investor. This is a person who takes a small percentage of his or her annual income and invests it in his or her company pension plan, a 401k, or a mutual fund. In this time when many people don't save or invest at all, these modest savers and investors are actually ahead of the game, but their investments almost never amount to true financial wealth. All the modest saver of old and the modest investor of today actually build is a small financial nest egg to provide for their most basic needs. When most people stop to do the math, they are shocked at how little income their current investment plan will provide when they quit working. The truth is that only a tiny percentage of people, probably less than 1%, make enough income from their jobs to become financially wealthy. I'm talking about people such as highly paid athletes, actors, musicians, and executives. The extraordinary compensation these people receive is so large that they can easily live off a fraction of their income, invest the rest, and even with modest rates of return, achieve financial wealth. The operative word here is could. I'm continually amazed at how many of these high-income producers think they do not need to be investors. Here's the problem. They cling to a far-fetched assumption that their jobs will continue to provide these extraordinary streams of income. In fact, the more money people make, the more overconfident they tend to be about their financial future. Prosperity can provide a false sense of security. Oh boy, do I know that one. I got my ass kicked more than once that way. It's funny how humans tend to be the same, huh? Back to the book. They may overspend and underinvest to the point that one day they wake up and realize they are on the downslope of their primary income earning years and their lifestyle is about to come to an end. Others understand that they should be investing, but then delegate all responsibility for their financial wealth building to other people. 
which you have to admit, I mean, at this point in time, by 2017, if you're doing some of this stuff, you, you almost need a fucking intervention, right? Between like what happened to um, lots of government employees, either at the city, county, or state level, having their pensions cut. Uh, when you think about the crash and the number of company pension plans are cut, like, and their pension for a nickel on the dollar, just how fucked most people would be and how little money you get from social security. Yeah. Wake up back to the book as presumptuous. It is to count on your income to be there. Always. I find it even more presumptuous to trust others to tend to your financial future. How many times you read about athletes, actors, musicians, and business people filing for bankruptcy. The fact is that people tend to spend money in direct proportion to the amount they earn and any extra money that comes along, gifts or bonuses is earmarked for consumption before it ever arrives in their bank accounts. It seems strange, but it's high income doesn't but high, a high income doesn't necessarily translate to financial wealth. One of the most startling examples I can think of is is a is the story of former heavyweight boxing champion Mike Tyson. Over a period of 20 years, Tyson reportedly earned over $400 million. Despite that, records reveal that he filed for bankruptcy in 2003 after falling $23 million in debt through extravagant spending habits and by allowing others to watch over his money. Not only did he not manage his money well, it appears that neither did those he put in charge of it. I'm certain he never felt he was capable or even that he should play an active role in his financial well-being. Like so many others, he might have said, I don't need to be an investor. My work is my financial wealth and others will manage my money. As we all know, Tyson eventually lost his job and his financial wealth. It is a sad tale, but one that, from a financial standpoint, is all too common among high-income earners. It is, as they say, easy come, easy go. And in a consuming society, that's exactly how it does go. I don't want to diminish the value of financial advisors. To the contrary, I engage them, have great faith in them, and believe everyone should have them. What I'm saying is that wherever your money is, you need to be there too. No matter how you make your money or how much you make, you don't take an act. If you don't take an active role in your financial planning and money management, you're at grave risk of seeing your investments underperform or worse, be lost. As the saying goes, a fool and his money are soon parted. While we're not calling anyone a fool, not acting like an investor or not being active in your investments is one of the most financially foolish positions you can take. I encourage you to look at your your job differently. Your job is a venue where you can earn your initial investment capital and a percentage of your wages must be dedicated to building up your investment stake. I don't want to shock you, but the legendary investor Sir John Templeton tells a story about how he and his wife lived off as little as 50% of their income at the beginning of his investment career. They made a game of seeing how well they can live on only a fraction of their household income. While you may not be like Templeton, choosing the path to financial wealth will require that you live off less than you make and consume less than the world tells you to. You can't let the media and advertisers set your values for you. Just as kids sometimes decide to eat Based on television commercials, adults tend to let the media convince them what they should spend their money on if their financial decisions aren't guided by stronger by a stronger compass. Don't get caught keeping up with the Joneses. The faster you reach a position where you can begin your investment career, the faster you'll be able to achieve financial independence. 
I love the story of James Sorensen. In the 1940s, Sorensen had a job selling medical supplies in the Salt Lake City area and got in trouble for not spending enough money on his sales visits with physicians. When he turned in his first expense report for less than $5, his supervisor told him he needed to spend, or at least report, $30 or more for his clients' entertainment expenses each week, or he'd spoil the business for everyone. But instead of taking doctors out for drinks or fancy meals, Sorensen would buy them coffee or soda. Then he'd take the difference and invest it in real estate. In those days, he would buy plots of land in Utah for as little as $25 an acre. About a decade later, the uranium boom hit, and those plots sold for thousands. Rather than just enjoy the perks, Sorensen didn't count on his job for his financial wealth. He started early, and he started small. He spent a lifetime thinking like an investor, working in a job he had a passion for, and investing for his future. As a result, by 2004, he was reportedly worth approximately $4 billion. Ideally, you should look at your work this way. It can be a passion that, pl- that pays you money for doing what you love to do. Some passions pay more than others, but as history indicates, they rarely pay enough to create financial independence. Your job is your job. Financial wealth building is something else. This is how I think Source and looked at it, and I encourage you to do the same. Most people think that earning money in a job and saving some of it and sticking it in the company retirement plan makes them investors. It doesn't, but they think it does or think it close enough that they don't need to be an investor. It is this misunderstanding that causes many people not to become true investors. Don't let that be you. Realize that whatever your job or work is, you also need to be an investor. You must wake up in the morning telling yourself, I'm an investor, I'm building financial wealth. Today's the day I could find an opportunity and make a deal. This goes for everybody who thinks the government's going to come fix their financial lives too. Right? Good God, look at it. Back to the book. Personal myth number two. I don't need or want to be financially wealthy. I'm happy with what I have. Truth, you need to open your eyes. You do need and want to be financially wealthy. You have no idea what you will need or want beyond today. You cannot predict what life will offer down the road for good or for bad. As hard as you may try, you can't predict with any confidence the resources you'll need to deal with life's uncertainties. Complicating everything is the fact that it takes time to grow money. Financial wealth building is not something that can be accomplished in reaction mode. It is really difficult to find more money just because you all of a sudden want or need it. As I've said all along, small money comes easily, big money does not. Becoming an investor, someone who pursues financial wealth building every day, is all about preparing for the minimums and maximums in your life. The unpredictable financial minimums you may need and the unforeseen financial maximums you may want. If you choose not to pursue financial wealth, your future more than likely will be defined by extremely limited finan- limiting financial choices. You may have to scramble to meet your changing needs or do without the things you eventually wish for. At a point in your life when settling for less might devastate you, you might have to do just that. Let me share with you a revealing conversation I had with my students on the pursuit of big financial wealth. Student. You know, Gary, I hear you talk about building financial wealth. I understand the logic of what you're saying. The problem is that I'm not motivated by money. I'm happy with what I have. I really don't need or want anything else. Life is going great just the way it is. 
Gary. Fair enough. I truly appreciate your honesty and respect your answer. Now, I'd like to ask you a question. Do you have insurance? Do you have a car, homeowner, disability, or medical insurance? Sure. It's a prudent thing to do, right? Insurance takes care of unplanned and unexpected. Gary, right. That's exactly the way I feel too. Things can happen that are beyond your control and it's good to be prepared. My question for you though is this, how can you be sure that the unexpected won't happen in the areas of your life that insurance won't cover? I'm not sure what you mean. Well, what happens if you suddenly lost your job or worse, your ability to earn a living? Honestly, I've never really thought about it. I guess you just don't expect things like that to happen. I have no idea what to do in that situation. I understand, but it's a real possibility, and you really should think about it. And by the way, we're just talking about you. Well, if that sort of thing happened to someone you loved and that person wasn't financially prepared? You know, that scares me a bit. The thought that a friend or family member might someday need my help and that I wouldn't be able to provide it saddens me. If they had health issues or experienced financial disaster, I think I might feel bad if I were not in the position to help in a meaningful way. That's actually what I'm talking about. If something like that happened and you weren't prepared, at the very least, you might have to make incredible sacrifices in order to be of any help. You're a giving, caring person. I hate to see you in that position. But you're not alone in this. No one can know beyond today what he or she might or might not need in the future. And because that's true, doesn't it make sense to pursue more financial wealth than you currently need if for no other reason that financial help can serve as an umbrella insurance policy for your life? I gave my student a moment to think about the truth of our conversation and sink in, and I honestly think it did. Sometimes it's hard to think in terms of future possibilities, especially unpleasant ones. As we talked more, I also let her know that all unanticipated needs aren't bad. What if she had a gifted child who needed special uh, educational opportunities? What if an unforeseen opportunity arose that required more money to take advantage of than she currently had? I wanted to go in this direction because... We hadn't yet discussed the other side of the issue, the idea that some needs are also about seizing valuable opportunities to move forward in life, and sometimes you may want money beyond your current needs and necessities. Here's how that conversation went. Just for argument's sake, let's imagine you have all the money you'll ever need. You also have enough to take care of the critical unforeseen needs that might arise for your friends and loved ones. Now, if you still had an abundance of financial wealth after all those needs have been taken care of, are there other things you might do with your money? Sure. I mean, I guess everybody daydreams about what they'd do if they had a lot of money. My first thought is I'd love to take my parents on a long trip around the world. They've always wanted to travel. They've never quite been able to. That would make me feel great. That's awesome. I love the idea of you traveling the globe with your folks. Is there anything else you would do if money were no object? Oh, gosh, it's so hard to imagine. I guess maybe I'd help out a friend of mine. She's a single mom, and I know that helping her out a little would be a huge lift for her. That's great, but now I want you to think even beyond your friends and family. Are there things you'd like to see happen in your community? Well, of course, i go crazy with this. I'd fix up the homeless shelter downtown. I'd donate money to provide meals for the needy. I'd set up an after-school recreation program for kids. And actually, we need an emergency um, blood bank, and I'd fund that too. Honestly, Gary, there's just so much that is needed here in town. Absolutely, I got it, but let's go even bigger than that for a second. What if you had financial wealth such that even after you did all those things, you're going to reach and extend even beyond this town? What could you do? Wow, that's even tougher. Who thinks about that? I mean, I guess I'd do something huge like support cancer research. Or maybe I'd want to create an organization to help fund the fight against heart disease. I might even be able to help put a dent in world hunger. 
Now listen to yourself. Earlier you said it felt bad to think about pursuing, you said it felt bad to think about pursuing more money. Now it sounds a lot like you're imagining a very exciting life where you're able to make a big difference in the world and in the lives of people. I never really thought about it that way we're talking about today. I guess I've always been afraid that money might own me. That's perfectly normal. I think a lot of people feel that way. There's this idea that having more money or pursuing it will change them or even worse, corrupt them in some way and make them bad people. However, it's been my personal experience that having more money won't change you at all. What it will do is amplify who you already are. I believe that in the end, people are exposed to new possibilities by financial wealth and empowered by it. Instead of being changed by money, it simply allows them to be more of who they really are. That makes sense to me. More money just makes you more of what you already are. Exactly. Your hypothetical responses just prove the point. You're one of the most generous souls I know. Having more wealth would just amplify your generosity. So tell me, how does this new view of your financial potential make you feel? Honestly, it makes me feel inspired. Inspired? Yes, inspired. Inspired that my life could be so much bigger than I ever thought was possible. You know what? You're inspiring me too. See, this is the kind of thing that happens when you pursue maximums for your financial life instead of minimums. Suddenly, money can become good for the good it can do, and the more you have, the more good you can do. I appreciate the candidness of my student and her willingness to allow me to talk to her in this manner. What's fascinating is that she really did get it. She realized that there are two types of people in this world. First, There are those who, because they chose not to build financial wealth, have limited opportunities to care for themselves and their loved ones. Second, there are those who, because they chose to pursue financial wealth as an investor, have much larger opportunities to care for not only themselves and their loved ones, but also for so much more. It's the difference between focus on the minimums life can require and a focus on the maximums life can offer. It comes down to what kind of person you want to be in the life you want to lead. Later, as you might expect, she and I began to talk about how to make more money. This curiosity is a natural result of imagining how big your wants and needs might become. You progress from seeing that it might be possible to believing that it should be, and then you realize that you are now motivated to seek financial wealth for your highest potential. Most people are taught to live within their means, but I was taught differently and encourage you to think differently as well. Instead of forgetting your dreams and living within your means, try pursuing the means to live your dreams. I like that. Instead of, you ready for this? Instead of forgetting your dreams and living within your means, try pursuing the means to live your dreams. Say that 10 times fast, huh? Give it a shot. Personal myth number three. It doesn't matter if I want or need it. I just can't do it. You can't predict what you can or can't do until you try. I really struggle with this way of thinking. I just don't understand why people seem to want to place judgment ahead of effort and unproven opinions before a willingness to try. There's no way for you or anyone else for that matter to know your true financial potential. And because your true financial potential is unknown, it makes no sense to place limits on it. I can't do it becomes another rationale for not trying, for not stretching, for not exploring your potential. Some people have told me they don't want to set themselves up for disappointment. The unfortunate irony is that the people who would rather not than set themselves up for disappointment by going for are the very ones destined for disappointment. 
The moment you buy into the idea that you can't achieve financial wealth, you put yourself on the path to complacency, compromise, and ultimately regret. Years ago, the online job search company Monster.com ran a, a provocative Super Bowl ad showing a series of children describing their financial dreams and aspirations. The award-winning commercial combined humor with poignancy to make a powerful point about setting for what you thought you could do instead of pursuing what might be possible. The litany in the commercial went something like this. When I grow up, I want to file all day. When I grow up, I want to claw my way up to middle management. I want to be replaced on a whim. I want to be a yes man, yes woman, yes sir, coming sir, anything for a raise sir. Three or four other children continued this refrain until the commercial closed with a surprisingly touching question. What did you want to be? With that question, the contrast between the modest aspirations and resigned attitudes of the children in the commercial and the shoot for the stars hopes real children have went from humorous to sobering. That was when you realized that you may have made more compromises along the way than you might have imagined. That somewhere along the journey of your life, you stopped wondering what was possible for you and started thinking in terms of what was probable. In my experience, there are basically two ways people view their financial potential. There are those who think in terms of what financially probable of what's financially probable and those who think in terms of what's financially possible. Probability thinkers base their views on their future financial selves, on their past history and current capabilities. They say to themselves, based on who I've been and who I am, this is probably what I can financially accomplish in the future. They use words such as realistic and likely when they discuss their financial potential. As a result, when they are presented with a a new opportunity that doesn't fit their preconceived notions of their financial potential, they often conclude that they simply can't do it. For them, their financial future is determined, predictable, and ultimately static. Possibility thinkers, in contrast, rarely use the words, I can't do it. They set aside any limiting notion they might have about their financial potential and base their view on their future financial selves on what they imagine themselves to be capable of accomplishing. And they use an altogether different vocabulary. Their potential is described in terms of what's conceivable, what's imaginable, and what's possible. They say to themselves, I have dreams for a reason. Based on who I become, this is what I can financially accomplish. They take into account that they might have to learn new things, acquire new skills, or change their habits to reach their full financial potential. For them, their financial future is flexible, active, and ultimately alive. A great example of this is Trammell Crow. Hope we didn't butcher your name, dude. Sorry. Who rose from humble beginnings to amass one of the largest real estate empires of all time. A child of the Depression, Crow and his seven brothers and sisters grew up in a Dallas home with no bath or hot water. But Trammell didn't let his modest beginnings dictate the size of his future. In 1948, he went into real estate and saw a world of unlimited possibilities. He quickly realized that through loans and private investors, he could he could achieve his goals long before he could on his own. Crow's big idea was the commercial shopping mall. We take them for granted now, but in 1955, Crow's idea was revolutionary. By the 1960s, he was a leading developer of shopping malls in the United States, and by the 1980s, he was the largest real estate developer and property manager in the country. Today, because he saw no limit in his potential, the Trammell Crow Company is one of the largest diversified commercial real estate service companies in the world. 
Many of the real estate investors we interviewed told similar stories about how before becoming investors, they would have been voted least likely to become financially wealthy by the world. A good example is Barbara Matson, whom I mentioned briefly in the introduction. Barbara worked as a home health nurse, and her husband, Tom, was in construction. They were a typical family living in a modest home with two cars and a pair of young daughters. Then, in 1997, Tom came home not feeling well. The next morning, he couldn't move. Suddenly, Barbara was left to care for her children and ailing husband while having to earn enough income to cover two car notes, a mortgage, and a mountain of medical bills. Month after month, the Madsons battled unsuccessfully to get workers' compensation. I'm living on macaroni and cheese here, she complained to her labor attorney. I can't do this. You have to help me. But his only response was, Ms. Matheson, this is a long process. In her efforts to keep the bills paid and the creditors at bay, Barbara was often just circulating her debt, robbing Peter to pay Paul. In the end, she was encouraged to declare bankruptcy and start over, but she was determined not to give up. In one of those positive coincidences, Barbara bought some tapes on investing in real estate. They originally were intended for Tom to fill his time and possibly eventually provide a way for the earning income for the family. After all, he worked in construction and understood real estate. But he didn't show much interest, so Barbara listened to the tapes at night while caring for her youngest daughter. She also listened to him on the way to her home care appointments. Then in July 1998, almost nine months after he became ill, a simple sneeze caused Tom's legs to go numb. He emerged from uh, surgery cocooned in a body cast. Coincidentally, just when things were darkest, his workers' compensation was approved and they received a $20,000 check covering nine months of back payments. Here is one of those defining moments when the difference between probability thinking and possibility thinking is revealed. Barbara had very little knowledge of investing. In fact, she just listened to that single set of tapes. Between work and looking after her husband and family, she had almost no time. Even though she had temporary possession of a large sum of money, her bills and debts added up to a lot more. In essence, she didn't have much money at all. Faced with the same situation, what do you think most people would do with that money? Would they pay off their bills and get their accounts back in order? Would they use the money to supplement their income and get some relief? Or would they do what Barbara did when, in an inspired moment of clarity, she invested the money in real estate? My philosophy was survival. If I could start building real estate and build up enough to replace Tom's income, it wouldn't be so bad if he couldn't ever work again. Over the next six months, she started buying rental properties. Eventually, the rents began to add up until finally she can see a light at the end of the tunnel. Today, because she placed no artificial limits on her potential, Barbara owns a real estate company and over $9 million in real estate. Because Barbara could imagine better possibilities in a bigger life, she could have them. How sobering is that? Be warned. Once people step over into possibility thinking and believe that they can achieve financial wealth, they often see a whole new set of obstacles. They quickly become certain that they will need more time, money, and investment knowledge than they currently have or could acquire easily. They think things like, it's too late, I don't have enough time, there's no way, I just don't have enough money to start investing, or I would if I could, but I have no idea what to do, and besides, I'm no good with money. What these individuals don't realize is that most big things start small. They mistakenly believe that big success at anything requires big and mysterious things they don't have, such as the following. Special natural abilities versus a little of of some acquired abilities, lots of free time versus a little bit of well-spent time, massive amounts of money versus a little well-placed money. 
In the end, what you actually need to become a successful investor is a lot less than what you think you need. Figure five on the facing page graphically demonstrates how much ability A, time, T, and money, M, a person needs to begin an investment career. While many people mistakenly believe they need a lot of all three, they actually need a little of each, the right abilities, well-spent time, and well-placed money. Beyond this, they can accelerate their growth as an investor by picking one area to increase. They can choose to focus on acquiring more ability through reading, seminars, or mentors, give it more time, seeking opportunities, or networking with other investors, or attract more money from family members, friends, investors, or lenders. Over time, each of these areas can grow and power as an investor will increase. The hidden secret is that the three factors are multipliers of each other. If you double your time, even if your ability and money remain the same, you double your current investment potential. If you you double your ability and your time, you quadruple your current investment potential. If you double each of the three, you increase your current investment potential eightfold. The investment game is played by beginning with a little of each and working to increase any one of the three. The chart above illustrates how this multiplier effect works when you increase your investing time, money, and ability. Your self-assessment in these areas often dictates your strategy. People who have the luxury of time have, but have limited financial resources can focus on amplifying their ability to achieve, their, to achieve greater success. They also can earn sweat equity by doing much of the work other investors might contract out. In contrast, investors with more financial resources and less time can afford to employ experts and contractors to make up for their lack of time. Time and money often are strongly connected. In that time can be used to earn money and money can be spent to buy time. Similarly, ability can be had with time. Think books and seminars or bought with money. Consultants. Understanding how ability, time, and money combine to produce investment results is an important step on the path to becoming a successful investor. The wonderful thing is this. Any extra ability, time, and money you have in the beginning speeds up the process. When we interviewed best-selling author and millionaire real estate investor Robert Kiyosaki, he made an important observation. People will believe what they want to believe. They find excuses that prevent them from taking a look at what might work. And when they find a reason, they make the reason their reality. He was talking about the power of personal myths and the way they serve as barriers to achievement in our lives. The big three myth understandings are some of the most powerfully, a powerful limiting beliefs you can have, and we hope you're ready to step past them and discover your true financial possibilities. I am hopeful that you will now believe that your job is not your financial wealth, that you both need and want to pursue financial wealth, and that true financial wealth is possible for you no matter where you are in life. If that is the case, then you have moved past these three fundamental doubts and fears, and you're ready to address myth understandings people commonly hold about investing. And we are going to stop this week on page 60. We're in an hour and a half. I think that's about right. So we read to page 60 in the Millionaire Real Estate Investor. I'm all motivated again. What do you guys think? I know sometimes this this mindset stuff gets a little annoying, but I don't know. I like to revisit it often. So that's uh, 60 pages out of, uh, well, if you read uh, 
stuff at the end. 354. So we're going to be chipping away at this for a while. And pretty much the only time I have to do this, I'm just going to come into the office on Saturday or Sunday morning early and knock it out. It's just not possible to get it done during the week, which is why I haven't been posting them. So I finally just made some damn time to do it. So here we are. Um, Hey, now's the time. If you enjoy and find this podcast helpful, please considering consider helping me out um, in one of the following ways. First, rate and review on iTunes. This is probably the best way, especially I know a lot of people don't have money. That's fine. You don't need money. Just rate and review on iTunes if you enjoy it. It is amazing how that one small, simple act can help grow the podcast because if you can help me grow the podcast, that would be wonderful. And here's another free way you can do it is you can share the podcast on social media, right? Just go ahead and put it out there. Share it if you like it and you like a particular episode or whatever. Just share it. If, if we're friends on uh, Facebook or whatever, just tag me in it too. I would appreciate that so I can see you doing it and I can thank you for all those who have shared it and I, and I wasn't able to say thank you. And for those who did, thank you again. I really do appreciate it and it really does help out. Also, I am a real estate investor and an agent. If you have any deals in uh, Metro Detroit or you're looking to list your home for top dollar, you want to sell it, I'll work my ass off for you, right? You can go and hire me or send it my way, 313-600-2133 or jeremy at renegadedetroit.com, J-E-R-E-M-Y at renegadedetroit.com and I will get back to you, all right? And then another great way to do it, if you're a real estate agent or you're thinking about becoming a real estate agent, you may want to consider looking into the Keller Williams model. Now, I don't drink a lot of the Kool-Aid, right? And if you if I, if you would have told me 10 years ago I'd be a real estate agent, I, I would have called you a liar. I mean, I, I hate real estate agents too, but they're not all bad. And uh, some of them do things particularly well. And I get, this, I get to see that side now. And if you're already an agent and you're thinking about maybe switching, consider Keller Williams, right? Now, do your homework, do your research. I don't care where you go. Do what's right for you. But if you're introduced to the idea of Keller Williams by me and you explore some local offices around you and end up joining, you can write me in. And Keller Williams has profit share. Now, some people call this... Um, like a pyramid scheme, it's not. So each of the offices, the actual Keller Williams offices, are owned by uh, the people who invested in it, um, 50, uh, 51% to the people who invested in it, right? And then 49% by all the agents at that market center. So that means that 49% of the profits go back to that market center. And yeah, bills are paid out of it and all that. But anyway, there's there's a chunk and a number of what's left over, and that is paid out as profit share, right? So that's how the money is divided up, and it goes like seven levels. It doesn't matter. Don't don't get too caught up in the details, right? But just know that if you write in my name, Jeremy Burgess, and um, go ahead and give me a call, 313-600-2133, whatever other information they need, Right. Um, they can find me in there and it costs you nothing. And then as you go on to become an amazing agent and build a great career and all that, 
I get a very, very teeny tiny piece of that profit share from that 49% right there out of that market center. And then you can go uh, sign up people under you if you like it. If you like where you're at, don't do it. It's just for those considering or maybe they don't like where they're at. Maybe they're not an agent yet. And some of the things I like about Keller Williams, and I don't drink all the Kool-Aid. No, thank you. And by the way, not every Keller Williams office is good. This is kind of like a, a franchise thing, right? I mean, they don't necessarily, they don't really franchise it out, but you know, some, some places are better than others, right? I enjoy the training. They do their best to kind of get rid of those shitty agents that none of us like right now. They're still there. There are plenty of shitty Keller Williams agents, but there are less shitty agents with Keller Williams than in other agencies that I have seen and the educational opportunities from people who really do have uh, multi-million dollar businesses. You know, a lot of those training companies, they just hire some schmuck and they've never done it before. I mean, I don't know how many conferences I've gone to where I've taken terrible advice from people who have never done it. That doesn't usually happen in Keller Williams. They, especially the further up the chain of command, like you might, you might be stuck in a market center and you might have um, a shitty productivity coach who never really was. Um, an agent never really built an agent business. I know I've met several and I'm just, the irony of that is not lost on me. Right. But the further up you go, like the other seminars, the national ones where they, where they fly around, they don't bring you in unless you've built a business and you have, you've, you've sold thousands of houses. Um, like, uh, Matt Sutter went to winning with sellers. It was 50 bucks and he sold over $2 billion in real estate through his teams and his expansion teams. Right. Okay. That's the guy I want to learn from. Uh, Wendy Patton, she's a local person here too, right? She's done lease options. She's big in the uh, real estate agent world as well. If she's going to teach, you know she's done stuff, right? That That's kind of the point I'm kind of bringing out. And they they tend to look at it more like an educational thing. Anyway, I'm not drinking too much of the Kool-Aid. If that's something you're considering, you can write me in, right? That's it. That's what you can do. And um, I really appreciate it if you consider doing those things. If you enjoy the podcast, right? Let's go ahead and wrap it up for this week. If you have, if you're just curious about Renegade Detroit, by the way, I'm redoing the website. I know I've been saying that forever, but I actually am. I'm actually doing it, right? So go to renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, right? You're listening, you're like, you know, I want to go to a local meeting, right? We meet the first Tuesday of every month. Don't PM me asking me when the meeting is. That's why I have the internet. Go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. It's going to be there. I promise. All right. And if you're interested in what I'm doing, you can look me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. And I got a bunch of videos and other stuff at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit wholesalers. There you go. Go look that up. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know I do this every time. I know the distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits, bad starts in life. Maybe you just got unlucky, right? Shitty family. Pick some goals. I don't care how small. Stick with them. Don't give up and do something every day that gets you closer. Even if it's just one teeny tiny step, all right? I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. I really do appreciate your attention. I know you can be doing lots of other things right now. So thank you. And until the next podcast, crush it.